Okay, well, we started our series a few weeks ago on the book of Genesis, so I hope you have a Bible. If you don't, we're going to have the words on the screen for you, uh, so don't fret. Uh, But we started a few weeks ago with the question, where are you from? And it was so interesting because I know a little bit about our congregation, but I think we all got to see that not only are we from Marshall, we're also from East Texas, and then believe it or not, we're also from all the corners of Texas, here, right here locally in this congregation. We're also from just about every corner of the United States, even beyond the borders of the United States. And that was so interesting to see people who have come to the United States and ended up right here in our little town, uh, in our congregation. But the question Genesis is trying to answer in the beginning wasn't just where are you from, but where are we all from? A much, much more significant question. And we saw the answer that we are not just from here, we are from God. This is the reality in the beginning, that we are from God. We're not from earth, we're not even from the universe. We are from God who existed before anything and created everything. In fact, it's kind of our definition of God that we've been working with and living under, that God is the creator and the sustainer of everything and everyone. And we're from him. But in his kindness, uh, God has also answered a question for us that we all wrestle with. In fact, it's probably the biggest question that our culture wrestles with as we speak today. And it's the question, who am I? Who am I? So we've gone from the beginning, uh, the kind of the introduction to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And then we sort of hit the Six days of creation from Genesis 1, 3 through 31, uh, and then kind of looked at big picture, 30,000 foot level of each day of creation. Then we saw sort of the conclusion to this section, which was day seven uh, last week, where we talked about God's rest on the seventh day and what that means for all of the world and eternity. But we also want today to go right back into day six of creation and really zoom in on what God tells us. It's actually the day of creation that gives us the most information. And so we don't want to just gloss over it. And it is also very personally, personally applicable to every single one of us because it's the day God created us. We're from him. And then he also answers the question for us, who am I? So I want you to read this with me. I'll read it out loud, and you just follow along with me from Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man In his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. The sixth day. The day that we learn who we are. You've all seen the name tags that have the little the strap on the top where it says, Hi, my name is, and then you get to fill in the blank. I hope you've had an experience. It's kind of an anxiety-producing experience for me because uh, the first thing I think is, like, people know me as different things in different places. In Waco, I'm known as Jeff, which is all of you are probably like, oh, that sounds weird, uh, because I don't go by Jeff here. It just sort of happened in my years there in Waco. Uh, most of you probably know me as Jeffrey or Pastor Jeffrey, uh, or you even know, might know me as Geo or Pastor Geo. Either one of those. That's all great, uh, because my name is spelled G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. I always have this little anxiety moment. I'm like, what should I write on this card? Like, it depends on who I'm around. Well, that's actually what a lot of people are doing with their lives today in our world. We're trying to fill in the blank to answer the question who we are with all kinds of different things other than just our name because our name doesn't even really tell who we truly are, does it? It just is an identifier. But our culture is looking for all kinds of ways to fill in the blanks. We're looking for various pronouns. We're looking for various adjectives, things that might supplement our identity to help us get a firmer grasp on who we are. But this Genesis 1 passage finally gives us some satisfactory language, some language that holds water, some language that will stand up over time, uh, that will represent and identify who we truly are. The language is this phrase, the image of God. The image of God. And, and the image of God is a, is a bedrock theological idea that gives us our only firm footing for what it means to be truly human from the beginning at creation. So I want to look deeper into this passage to see how the image of God plays out in our lives. And the text actually shows us that it was first His divine plan. It was also God's divine pattern for our lives, then even God's divine purpose for us. So first, let's look at divine plan. Verse 26, and just pay your attention right there. You might remember the rhythm for creation. Up to this point, as we looked at the six days of creation, we saw this playing out, that the rhythm for creation up to day six was, and even into day six, was God says, God said, let there be. Remember this important thing of God's voice. God speaks creation into existence out of nothing. He said, let there be, dot, 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 Every day he said that, and then it would say immediately, and it was so. That when God spoke, things just happened. But when God created humanity, there's a distinct change in approach in the text. When God creates humanity, instead of saying, let there be humanity, and it was so, he says in verse 26, let us make. Let us make. Now two things are happening here. The first is, instead of speaking something immediately into existence, we see for the first time that God speaks of his intentions before his creation comes to be. God speaks of intentions. Well, God didn't need to slow down to have a brainstorming session, right, so he could work out all the kinks of what humanity would be and make sure he got it right. No, God totally has the power and the sovereignty and the ability to be able to speak, let there be humans, and humans would come to be in perfect form. 
But instead, what we see here is a window into God. We see what he's really like. We see that as he makes humanity, that he was deliberate, that he was intentional, and that humanity thereby is special to him, more special than any other thing that he created. Now, the second thing that's happening here is that we see a shift from the third person to the first person. Let there be is always in the third person, that it's happening outside of himself. But then here in verse 26, he says, let us make. It's a shift into the first person. So while the creation of some things depended on the creation of other things, for example, let the earth produce vegetation, let the water swarm with living creatures, let the earth produce the other living creatures earlier in day six. Instead, we see the creation of mankind is solely dependent on God himself. This makes us unique. This puts us in special relationship to God. And it also communicates an important truth that God is our only source of life. Human life cannot happen outside of God, initially or continually. Humanity is completely dependent on God for life. This was God's plan. God was deliberate and intentional and careful and kind and loving in his plan to create humanity. But also, more than just God's plan, we are also made in God's pattern or after God's pattern. My grandmother uh, was a... um, I don't know how do you say it? a sewer? I don't know a seamstress. That's what it is. A seamstress. I think that's um, that's how close I am to that. <laughs> I don't know. I can't figure it out. But I remember growing up, spending my summers with her. Uh, she would make us clothes, and for a while I loved it. And then I came to a point where I was totally embarrassed by it. Uh, but she would make us clothes, and all my cousins would match, and we'd take these pictures. But uh, the way she would do that is by a pattern. Right? She would get these patterns from you know, whatever, Hobby Lobby or wherever, and she would use that as a form to be able to create cuts of fabric to then sew together and make seams and make clothes of different sizes that all look the same. She used a pattern. Well, in the same way, God makes humanity. And unique from all other acts of creation, humanity doesn't find its, tr- excuse me, no other creation find its truest identity in God. But humanity has to look back to the beginning, to who made us. We can only find our truest identity in our Creator, in God. We don't find our truest identity in our parents or our friends or our culture or any other human that's ever existed. No other human can give us identity. God is our truest source of identity because of verse 26 after he says let us make he says let us make man in our image according to our likeness so we see God's our only source of identity now this important reality that's got to be recognized here if we're made in God's pattern that this applies to every human who has ever lived and will ever live this is not just for Christians Uh, This is a truth for the people who admit it or not. 
that they are made, created, their truest form of identity found in the likeness of God, the image of God. So it goes for the good ones. It goes for the bad ones. It goes for the evil ones who attack innocent people. It goes for the innocent ones who are attacked. It goes for the people we love. It goes for the people we disagree with. It's true about every single person is made in the image of God after God's pattern. So every person is this way in the sense that we are in the image of God as a noun, that it's just who we are. It, it just defines our existence. It's just something that we cannot escape, right? Uh, so the image is sort of not necessarily something we're doing yet. It's just it's descriptive of, of what we are and who we are. So the first way we can fill in the blank if we have a hot my name is, the most true way we could ever fill in the blank is I am the image of God. And that's true for every person regardless of their beliefs or actions. It reminds me of... Uh, just a fun thing that happened in Waco. Uh, when I told you I lived there for a while. Jill and I lived there for several years. There's a lovely neighborhood, because this is what happens when you get old. Uh, you go drive around and look at other people's beautiful homes, and you go, wow, it's so beautiful. So we would drive up and down this uh, road in Waco downtown called Austin Avenue. And on Austin Avenue, it's this beautiful historic neighborhood. And all the homes are, you know, big craftsman, traditional kind of style homes, beautifully manicured lawns, perfect trees, everything's amazing. And you're driving down the street, people are walking their beautiful dogs, and everybody looks perfect. I mean, it's just how it goes, right? But then you come to this one house, and in front of this house, there's something that just catches your eye, and it is so strange. It's a giant gorilla. It's a statue of a gorilla. Uh, and the story goes that there's this family who sounds like we could be friends who wanted to paint their home a certain color, but it wasn't allowed by the historic neighborhood homeowners association for them to paint their home a certain color. And so what they did was they found a loophole in the documents of the neighborhood and they found something they could do that would be sort of like a jab uh, to the neighborhood. And uh, they found that they could put a giant gorilla statue in their front yard in this pristine neighborhood and that it would break no rules. And then they went one step further. They would actually paint the gorilla in different patterns or colors and dress the gorilla uh, for different seasons or holidays like Christmas, the gorilla becomes a big gorilla Santa Claus. For Easter, it's a big gorilla Easter bunny. You can imagine just the fun that these people are having in this neighborhood where everybody else is perfect, and they're like, well, we're, this is who we are. Um, but here's what's interesting about this, is that no matter what happened to that gorilla, how it was painted, how it was dressed, it never lost its gorilla-ness, did it? <laughs> I just made up that word. You take all that stuff off, and it's still just that gorilla. It's a statue. This is what has happened to us with the fall of mankind. And as sin entered the world, we have masked the image of God in our lives. Uh, we've distorted the image of God. We've defamed or defaced the image of God. Uh, our image of God has been impacted by sickness and disease. All of these things, we've costumed it. Uh, we've looked for ways to hide it. But the reality is that we can never unmake what God has made. And every human is made in God's image. Now, what does this mean? 
Well, this means that the way we see ourselves has to be informed by this. That whatever has piled onto my life, at the core of who I am, the most true thing about me is the image of God. And for that reason, I ought to show myself some kindness and some grace and some love. But also that's true about other people. That there's people all over this world that we disagree with. There's people all over the world that have offended us. Yet what's true about them is they are also made in the image of God. And so this has implications for how we see people who might otherwise be described as enemies. We have to recognize there's a common reality among all people that we are all made after God's pattern in his image. We can never unmake our godness. It's just who we are. So even when someone seems unlovable, we can love them for that reason. Even when someone is at odds with us, we can find common ground. Even when someone hurts me, I can treat them with kindness and dignity because of the image of God. Because this is who we are. But also, it's not just God's plan. We're not just made after God's pattern, but this is also how we're designed to live. Not just as a noun, but as a verb. We are made to image God. And this is our divine purpose. In fact, there's six things, really, I'll say five, five things that I want to cover today. Uh, and then we may hold one for the future. Uh, but five things that I want to cover today from this passage that help us see what God's divine purpose for our lives are as his image. So the first is that we represent God. We represent God. Notice the difference in in this section of Genesis chapter 1 in contrast with the other creation, uh, parts of the creation narrative, that all other creatures are made according to their kind. You go back and see God talks about every creature that has breath in it, that lives. Any creature that is existing in creation is made and then reproduced according to its kind. Example is verse 24, just right before, probably on the same page of your Bible if you want to look at it. This is how animals are created and populating the earth. They're made according to their kind. Yet humans are not made that way, right? We are made in the image of God. So that means that we're not merely like ourselves, that we are also like God. That, as last week we talked about the similarities in the creation of the cosmos to the biblical temples, maybe you remember that from talking about God's rest and how he assumed his rightful place on the throne, sitting on the throne as ruler over all things as a description of what God's rest means because the temple, uh, the creation of a temple is very similar to the words and language of Genesis 1, creation of the cosmos. Well, what we can also infer from that is that usually in history, the last thing added to a temple as it was built was a representation uh, of the God who was worshiped in that temple. So here in God's cosmic temple, we are the final things created. The final creative act of God placed in his cosmic temple to represent him, to be reminders to all of creation everywhere we go that this is God's world. 
and that he alone is to be worshiped. So we represent God in this way because we're not made according to our own kind. We're made according to his kind in his image. In that way, we represent him. But we're also created for a relationship with God. If we dip back into 26 again, verse 26, we see another grammatical feature, right? As we talked about earlier, the the third person to the first person, that's like the impersonal becoming personal. Whereas God would just speak things into existence before, now he is deliberating amongst himself about humanity. Instead of saying, let there be, right? He said, let us make. And so we see that God is a God of relationship. In fact, as the Bible progresses, it will develop a doctrine that we call the doctrine of the Trinity, where we know God as being one, yet also more than one, that he's not just one, he's three. He's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all of them are equal and the same, yet they're distinct. And so we see this doctrine developed over time. Well, that's not necessarily saying that God is Three, when it says God in the plural, like let us make, or in our image, or in our likeness. Uh, but because the Israelites really wouldn't have understood that at the, at the moment. But this is a place that as that doctrine develops, we can look back on it and go, oh yeah, even from the beginning. This was sort of a hint, right? So we see the impersonal becomes personal, that God exists in relationship. And that he creates for relationship. In fact, we see that he would create according to his likeness, implying an even more special relationship. So like when a baby is born and someone comes to you and says, wow, that baby looks just like mom or dad or both, which that's always my answer, looks just like both of you, even though I think it just looks like an old man. Uh, This is what all babies look like. Just like when someone says a baby looks like a mom or a dad, they don't just mean that you, that baby appears like the mom or dad. What they mean to say is that baby belongs to that mom or dad. There's a deeper meaning here. And so we are born, created, not simply to look like God, but also to belong to God in relationship. We are His, created for relationship with him. In fact, verse 28 introduces the first divine action of relationship between God and his creation. When you look at it, it starts by saying in verse 28 that God blessed them. Well, that had happened before. God had blessed other things in, in creation uh, as other creatures were made. Yet this is the first time that when God blesses something that actually it can be received in the context of relationship. And then it says that God says to humans, God said the first words given to a creature that could hear and respond. And so we see that God communes with his people. We are made for relationship with him. And verse 28 actually is a, is a hinge where we see hinges in our homes or in the church building where Uh, They help a door either open or close. This is the hinge that opens the door to relationship with God. In verse 28, we see that God blesses. And I want to just zone in on that for just a second before we move on to the next purpose. I want to just show you that you and I are not here simply to exist, but that God blessed people 
uh, with what Trimper Longman calls a rich and vital life in the presence of God. Do you hear relationship in that? You're a good God in that, a God that has purpose and design and care and love for his people, that wants communion with his people, a response from his people, relationship. This is the blessing of God, a rich and vital life in the presence of God. In fact, even after humanity rebels against God in Genesis chapter 3 all the way through today, God never stopped blessing. Blessing is probably the biggest theme in the entire book of Genesis. We're going to see it for the next 36 weeks. It's all about blessing and God blessing despite our rebellion. And so here we see it even before we have the opportunity to rebel. So what I want you to see, though, is also this. While God never stops blessing, before God ever speaks instruction to humanity, He blesses them. And this is the way God always works. In fact, verse 28, I could say, is a preview of salvation in this way. Because the favor of God cannot be earned by obedience to instruction alone. And we know this reality as we read the New Testament. We see that our salvation is by faith because of God's grace to us. This is pictured for us right here in Genesis chapter 1 that God blesses. And then God says and gives his instruction. And so we now see that salvation cannot be earned by obedience, yet can only be received as a blessing from God first, by grace, through faith, and then followed with obedience. And so from this blessing, we now see that God's divine purposes for our life are really for our ultimate good. Because as we follow the charge, the command, the instruction, we know it comes from a place of goodness, a place of love and kindness, a place of blessing. And that as we follow, we live into God's blessing. This is what true human flourishing looks like. God's purposes for our life. And so we've seen that God is, uh, has us here to represent him, that we are made for relationship with him. But also we see that we are made to reproduce for God. Um, you might say this is kind of where it gets fun. Uh, verse 27, in the second half of verse 27 and 28, is kind of where I want to focus your attention. It's got this great little chorus. We were created in the image of God, and in his image we were created. We were created male and female. And then God blessed, and then God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now, what I want you to notice here, the three biggest questions that are being asked in today's world uh, are about gender, are about sexuality, and about the value of babies. These are the three, three biggest questions being asked, and in almost one breath from God, they are being answered. This is where our confidence comes from in a response to our cultural questions about gender, sexuality, and the value of human life. Uh, look at this in verse 27. God creates humanity in his image, but then he adds the further distinction. All of humanity is created in his image. 
That includes both male and female, right? But then he gives the further distinction, distinction, something he had not done as he created other creatures, although we know other creatures have gender. God goes one step further with humanity and says he created them male and female. And so we see that God created only two genders, male and female. We see that those genders are different from one another, yet equally made in the image of God, having great value and dignity, equal value and dignity, you could say, uh, that they are different from one another, uh, yet also made for one another with the express purpose of being fruitful, multiplying, and then filling the earth. And so, yes, this is about babies being born, not simply as a byproduct of our existence, but as a purposeful extension of the image of God to the ends of the earth. Now, some history actually kind of helps with this, some understanding of the cultural context, but the ancient understanding was this, that as uh, uh, Von Rad says in the Theological Journal, he says, just as kings set up statues of themselves throughout the border of their land to show their sovereign domain, so God establishes his representatives on earth. So in this way, as we reproduce, what we know we're doing is we are actually setting up more and more people to be living, breathing representatives of God to the ends of the earth. And so fill the earth isn't just about have as many babies as you can. It's about strategically having babies. It's about training those babies to understand themselves as the image of God and then ultimately launching them into a life of living for God so as to extend the boundaries of his reign on this earth. That's why we're not afraid as Christians to send our children across the world as missionaries or as doctors or as anything that they might be. They can go anywhere and do anything. And because they're made in the image of God and we've trained them to live as the image of God, they can go and extend the boundaries of God's kingdom here on earth. This is what God is asking us to do. So when you get married, which, yes, chapter 2, in just a couple weeks, we're going to see how chapter 2 gives marriage as the God-ordained framework for this reality of having babies and launching them out into the world. Um, When we get married, when we have babies, when we train them to understand themselves this way and launch them to extend the boundaries of God's rule and reign over creation, we are participating in God's good and sovereign rule over all things. It's a very practical way to know and enjoy life as God's image. So I am thankful that we have babies in our church. This is a great place to be and a great time to be here. In fact, we just had a baby born last week. Uh, Shout out to George as another granddad, a granddad again. Way to go, man. Um, Actually, props are to Elizabeth, I should just say. George, you didn't do anything, right? So you just get to enjoy being a granddad again. Uh, But we're so thankful that babies are being born and and pray that the Lord will continue to allow this blessing in the life of our church. But can I just say that if you're in a season of life that prevents you from having babies, and there are a number of reasons, whether it's your age or whether it's health or some other uh, thing that's preventing you from having babies, whether you want to or not, can I just say you are not exempt from this command You get to enjoy and participate 
in being fruitful and multiplying and filling, filling the earth as a part of this community of believers in Jesus Christ because we get to together raise these babies who are being born and lead them to a life to live as the image of God and extend God's rule and reign. And so very practically, you might go, well, I wish I could have a baby, or I used to be able to have babies, or whatever your scenario is. And I just want to tell you very practically, you can still participate in this. You can hold babies in our nursery on Sunday. You can teach kids Sunday school. You can volunteer at the Pregnancy Resource Center over on University Drive. You can do anything. You can provide financially for moms in need. There's all kinds of ways as a part of the community of God, as the image of God, that you can participate in this blessing of reproducing image bearers regardless of your ability to procreate. This is a kindness of God that he's given to each one of us. So the truth here is twofold. As we know, we can reproduce for God. The truth is that we can't look to anything but God to define gender, sexuality, and the value of human life. Nothing else can teach us what's really true about who we are in these three areas. The second thing, though, is this, is that we we each exist to extend the reach of God's rule. And as we extend God's rule, God actually gives us the charge, the blessing of ruling with him. We can rule under God because we are made in his image. Now, this is so different from any other creation myth that existed in the ancient world. What God intentioned in verse 26 in the second half when he says rule the fish of the sea and so on actually becomes a reality in verse 28. Look at it with me again. It says God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. This is a call to all of humanity, not only to see ourselves as God's image, but to live as God's image, ruling under his authority. Your translation in verse 28 might use the word dominion. You might have a translation uh, that has the phrase vice regent, uh, which is really just a means that we get to rule under God's authority with him. Well, no ancient or modern culture has conceived yet of a deity that invites humanity to share and participate in its rule. But God, the God of our Bible, sets himself apart from all other forms of religion in this way, that he is a true creator who creates with dignity and purpose. He gives us authority along with him and underneath him to rule and subdue and have dominion over the earth. While every other story about creation was only to the benefit of the gods who were described to have created. Humans were just trampled on. Humans were only created to serve the gods, not to rule with them. And so God is distinct. God is different. I want to let you you listen to how King David uh, of Israel articulated this in Psalm chapter 8. Starting in verse 3, David writes, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? 
You made him a little less than God. I want you to hear in God's image. And crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And then we see this little hint, which you might remember our study on the the Ten Commandments. You remember the commandment, don't take the name of the Lord in vain? We talked about how God's call on us is to bear his name, that we would extend his name and the glory and honor of his name in the way we live our lives. Now we also see again that God has invited us into his rule so that we can bear his image as rulers under him and with him. So that means regardless of your vocation or station in life, regardless of what you set out to do on a daily basis, your daily activity has the potential to establish the rule and reign of God. It also has the potential to challenge the rule and the reign of God. So think of it this way. When you create art, uh, when you post on social media, when you work at your job, when you raise your children, uh, when you tend your garden, when you care for aging parents, when you serve at your church, when you cook a really good meal, all of these are ways that you carry significance in your life to extend the rule and reign of God as you steward God's good creation. You are created in his image to rule. Now, this is a different way of thinking about life because most of us think about how we are ruled by things other than God, things that have control of our lives, people who can speak words that change the course of our lives, negative or positive. We think of all these things. I want to just remind you that God created you in his image to rule under him. The Bible would later call us more than conquerors because of Jesus. This is who we are. And finally, I just want to close with this. We are created in his image to rest with God. Now, we talked about this last week. Uh, we looked into chapters 2, verses 1 through 3, the seventh day of creation. But I want you to see how God distinguishes himself from another pro- prominent competing uh, pagan God creation story, and specifically a Babylonian God named Marduk. In Marduk's creation myth, it says that Marduk created humans from the blood of another god who was executed for treason, saying, and this is what he says, I shall create humankind, they shall bear the god's burden so that the gods may rest. So to the Babylonians, dignity and value only belonged to the gods. The burdens of the gods were placed on humans. In direct contrast, the God of the Bible doesn't create humans to bear his burden. He creates them to bear his image. And in doing so, imparts unmatched dignity and worth and value to all humanity. And then so invites us not only to participate in his rule, but also to enjoy 
his rest. Now, if we look forward a couple chapters, like I said in chapter 3, we're going to see where we mess it all up, right? Where we completely rebel. Well, even when we completely wreck God's perfect world, like traitors choosing sin over our creator, he invites us back into our divine purpose, not by heaping more burden on us, but by taking our burden upon himself so that he can redeem our brokenness and make us whole again. He does this through Jesus Christ. Listen to the New Testament writer in Hebrews chapter two, where he writes in quoting actually Psalm chapter eight, he is subjected to angels, the world to come (laughs) that we are talking about, but someone somewhere has testified What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. This is the reality. We have a God who doesn't heap burden on us, but God who actually creates us in his image and then his perfect image in Jesus Christ comes to earth in the form of man and takes our burden upon himself so that we can be freed from sin. This is the the mega story of the Bible. And this is where it really relates to you today. What image are you trying to be conformed to in this world? What image are you trying to project in our world today? God says you were made to to bear his image. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 would call us to be conformed to the image of Christ, who is our perfect example And we can only do so by placing our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. So do you feel like the image of God today? You can know what it means to be the image of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It'll change the course of your life. And it'll give you not only a life that follows God's plan and pattern, but also God's purpose. I want to lead you in prayer. Haley and the worship team are going to come and close with a chorus today. But I want to give you a chance to respond to this bedrock theological reality that you are the image of God. Maybe it's a prayer on your, on your part that just thanks God for making you in his image and asking him to help you realize what it looks like. It could be today that you need to receive Jesus by faith so that you can understand truly what the image of God is and how you can live into that by his grace through your faith. So let me lead you in that prayer and then we'll respond in our song. God, thank you for this beautiful picture, the truth that you are our creator, that we come from you, that you designed us with love and care and purpose that you slowed down the process of creation on day six to think about us and to give us this reality of being made in your image. God, help us to reclaim that through the forgiveness of our sin by faith in Jesus Christ.
that's only made possible by your love and grace toward us. For the person that needs to receive your grace through faith today, I pray they would have the courage to do that and to tell somebody. For the person that needs to now live in obedience because of the blessing of salvation, God, I pray they would have the courage to do that. We want to respond to this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.